Do you struggle to find answers to your pelvic health problems? Do you feel silenced in your quest to just feel better? Women, girls, sisters, if you have experienced infertility, PCOS, incontinence, painful periods, sexual trauma, and so much more associated with the pelvis, then Women's Pelvis Wellness is a place for you. Me and experts from around the world are joining here to get you the answers to the holistic health that you have been seeking. Please join us in being a pelvis wellness warrior. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Women's Pelvis Wellness. And today my guest is Megan Sollinger. Is that how you say it? Or Solinger? Yep. Solinger. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And um, I actually met Megan. Um, somebody sent me Megan's article that she wrote um, about what she does, you know, for a living. And that's what her, what her passion is. And um, one of the things that you do is you help kind of like older teenagers to young adults and actually everyone kind of within the fertility or the um, range of childbirth. So like what, 15 to about 39, you said? Correct. Yeah. Help, you help people within that range who have a cancer diagnosis, preserve their fertility pre-treatment. Well, that's one of the things that you do. And um, of course, you know, being in the medical field since I was 17 years old, I'm obviously aware that, you know, I'm aware that cancer treatments um, and some cancers just themselves can either temporarily or permanently cause infertility. But I had never thought to myself, there must be a position or someone out there who helps them through that process. So I'm super excited to have you here today and to share all of what you do um, aside, you know, more than just um, what I described. So thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And I, um, I'm excited to talk about everything related to fertility preservation. Cause I think, as you mentioned, it's a really under discussed topic or conversation. And I think that the more people know about it, the more, we can get people the the resources and the information they need to kind of make the right decisions for them given their circumstances. So thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Thanks. And again, you know, it was something I read the article and I thought, Oh my gosh, I've never heard of this position before I want, you know, obviously then other people haven't. So let's contact that lady. So yeah, I'm excited that you're here. So I was just going to say, like, when I um, talk to my friends about, like, what I do and describe what I do, because, I mean, it's really hard to fit into, like, one sentence or something, and I end up telling people about what I do. So many people, their reaction is exactly what yours was to the article that I wrote. What if I have no idea that this existed or that fertility was even something that is part of the discussion with cancer patients. So I think it's a really common I don't want to say misconception, but I think it's a common reaction to yeah. understanding what, what I do and that this position is really important. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, it can't really be a misconception if you don't even know that it's out there, you know, there's nothing, you know, to like, you're not confused about it because I didn't even know it existed. So exactly. Awesome. And so important. And of course it exists, but you know, if you're not, if that's not in your wheelhouse, whether in your professional, your personal life, how are you supposed to know? So that's why this podcast is here. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. Okay. So 
Um, tell me a little bit about, well, the organization that you work with, but then also kind of how you got into doing this to begin with. Yeah. So the Ullman Foundation is the organization that I work for. We are a Baltimore-based nonprofit. We've been around for 23 years. And it started when our founder, Doug Ullman, was diagnosed with cancer uh, as a 19-year-old in college. Healthy athlete and um Basically, his family realized kind of through his diagnosis and their experience that there weren't a lot of resources for adolescent and young adult patients. So by definition, AYA, as you mentioned, Amy, is the age range. They are childbearing years, ages 15 to 39. So it's a pretty standard definition across the board and across the medical field. And in that particular population there, you know, there's a lot of focus on pediatric patients. There's a lot of focus on older adults and geriatrics. But this is really kind of one of those gaps in services and resources. And so that's sort of how and why the Ullman Foundation came to exist. It really is a grassroots organization. It started at the family's dining room table here in Howard County, which is outside of Baltimore. Um, You know, 20, it started in 1997. So we've been around for a while and our whole mission and our purpose is to make sure that no young adult cancer patient and their family members goes through the cancer journey alone. So we create that community of support for patients and for their loved ones. I like to say we're all inclusive. Um, We have so many different types of programs that really we want to make everything accessible. So everything that we also do is free of charge, um, specifically for the direct services that we provide patients and their families. So we've been around for a while. Um, We've had patient navigation, which is one of the programs and sort of where we sort of one of our main focuses is on fertility preservation, as well as the psychosocial support piece of um, direct services and, and just really supporting the families and patients. So that is one of our longstanding programs. Um, the fertility preservation piece has something is something that has evolved over time, and we can definitely talk about that a little bit more. So that's um, really where fertility preservation comes into play is when we deal directly with patients, and then also education um, to our community as well, because a lot of people like you said, don't know about that aspect of the cancer journey for the young adults. And it's something that is very specific to this this population. I got into patient navigation and my involvement with the Ullman Foundation um, goes back to about 2015. My dad was diagnosed with glioblastoma, which is um, a terminal brain cancer when diagnosed. And so I was his primary caregiver for the beginning part of his treatment and diagnosis. um, And having a healthcare and public health background myself. And then he was a physician. I realized I was extremely frustrated. Uh, We didn't have the support services of something like the Ullman Foundation. And I was just constantly like, felt like grasping at straws and really having to learn to be an advocate when I felt like how, like I sort of had this aha moment. Like if I'm, you know, educated someone on healthcare and, you know, science and medical stuff. And he is a physician and we're still struggling. I can only imagine kind of how many other people are feeling in a, a very different <laughs> circumstance or situation than we were. And long story short, I was connected to the Ullman Foundation through a girlfriend here in Baltimore. Ironically, she worked for the Ullman Foundation as a navigator um, and connected me to their young adult sort of uh, volunteer group. And I literally went to one meeting and found the job posting yeah. position that I shortly after acquired, which is at the university of Maryland. So I sort of approached my patient navigation days in the hospital, working with patients as I want to be that resource that I, and we didn't have as a family 
for my patients. So if I've already learned something the hard way, I want to try and prevent my patients and their families from having to do that. Um, I understand sort of how much a family and patient has to deal with that if I can take something off their plates um, or just do the research for them and help empower them and support them in very individual ways, then um, I feel like I've done my, my job because that's something that I really wish that I had and we had. So that's sort of how I got involved with the Ullman Foundation. It came from more or less a personal family history or story um, and just kind of all the stars aligned. And uh, I found this position and I, it just, it's been incredible and super um, empowering really um, the past handful of years. I've been with the Ullman Foundation for almost four years now. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think to kind of clarify, so you, like I said, you're the navigator and that is awesome. That's the perfect word. I mean, right now, you know, my parents are in the mid sixties range and, you know, they're starting to have some health challenges and stuff. And it's just trying to even call an insurance company to get a bill paid or to find out why it's not getting paid or to find out who's covered. It's so frustrating. And I just think to myself, there's got to be someone else out there who knows this system, who can just help her, you know, um, and that's probably, you know, an insurance navigator. <laughs> yeah. But um, No, and it's great because so you kind of you're like the liaison, so to speak, you kind of put people in touch, you know, because you yourself don't help get, you know, help the preservation of the fertility, but you put them in touch with the people who do. Correct. More or less. Yeah. So it's sort of, I guess the answer is it depends for men. It's a different story than it is for women. Um, so I have a much more active role in the male fertility preservation process. If they choose to do it with the resources I have at the hospital, if they choose to go somewhere else to like a brick and mortar fertility clinic to collect their samples, that's more of a logistics thing. And I make sure that all the pieces are in order so that all they have to do is show up Right. Sample and make it as easy as possible. And similarly for women, it's mostly a referral process, but with either case, the first piece is education. And so I think that's a huge part, regardless of what the person ends up doing. Um, You sit down and have a a pretty in-depth conversation if the patient is open to it um, about their options and what the process looks like so that they can make an informed decision on what they would like to do. Sure. Yeah. I would imagine, you know, my son is going to be 15 the end of May. So when you're thinking about a 15, 16, 17 year old, from a parent's perspective, my first thought wasn't going to be, you know, oh, is this going to prevent them from having children? I would want to be like, save this one. <laughs> Let's focus yeah. on this baby. So it's good to have somebody out there who's not in the situation to have the wherewithal to kind of think beyond, you know, like right now or next year, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very normal reaction. I mean, when someone hears that they have cancer, especially as a young adult, because we all know cancer as a disease of the aging. Um, so it's not supposed to happen to young adults, but we all know that it does. Um, there's about 80,000 new patients diagnosed, plus or minus, depending on which resource you look at, new diagnoses every year in the AYA age range. So the incidence is, is still pretty high. Um, so it does happen. And so I think a lot of times, so you walk into a cancer center and if you're treated on the adult side, you, you seem and feel really young. If you get treated on a pediatric side, you feel really old. Um, and so just having a navigator who understands the needs of the young adults, my job day in and day out is only dealing with young adults. So I can anecdotally at least tell people if they're not physically seeing other young adults around that, that is my whole job. 
it, is, it takes up a whole day. I mean, I need more hours in the day to, to really help and address all the barriers that the young adults face themselves. Um, sure. And that's just one population. That's not the entire spectrum of ages that any of anybody that can get cancer. Yeah, no, definitely for sure. What does, I, I know this, but what does AYA stand for? Yeah, AYA stands for Adolescents and Young Adults. Okay. And it is, like I said, defined 15 to 39. Um, and, and by definition, that is the childbearing years of someone's life. So it's only fitting that fertility preservation is one of the very age-specific um, barriers that patients face in this population. Yeah, definitely. And of course, you know, for the men, it's obviously they just have to give a sample. But sometimes for the women, it can be something as, you know, maybe harvesting some eggs or maybe removing a full ovary. And that's something that they will discuss with whoever they decide to work with. Yeah. So the preservation process is um, interesting. So even for the ideal, the ideal situation is that a young adult is referred to their navigator or someone on their medical team is having the fertility preservation or the, the concept of infertility conversation with the patient at the time of diagnosis. Again, that puts the onus on so many different people. And it kind of, if you have a multidisciplinary team, it's like, who's having that conversation? Right. You know, it's not to assume that someone else is, that you should be that person having it. But if you have someone like a patient navigator or a specific person on the medical team to be designated as the person to have that conversation, it really helps. Um, again, the idea is that you get patients when they're first diagnosed before they start treatment to have that conversation. Right. But as we all know, cancer is this very unpredictable process. And so you sometimes get patients who come to a certain hospital or to see a specialist because they want a second opinion or they are a relapse or a recurrence of a disease. And so you're not necessarily always hitting them right when they're diagnosed. You also get patients who are coming in for transplants at certain centers because not every cancer center does stem cell or bone marrow transplants or even the newest um, treatment CAR-T. And so you also get patients at all different parts of the spectrum as well in terms of timeline of a diagnosis and a cancer treatment process. So some people have already been exposed to treatment at another institution, um, you know, and maybe at that time fertility preservation was discussed. They didn't decide to do it, um, you know, or it wasn't discussed. And so there's lots of different scenarios. (laughs) And so it's not this really simple let's just have a conversation and you always get them at the beginning. It could happen at any time. And it actually should be a conversation that is kind of constantly or consistently had throughout the cancer journey. Um, Right. Yeah. Because not, I mean, not all hospitals have a navigator. Correct. You know, so, I mean, that is something that you kind of have to seek out. And do you help people internationally or just nationally or, I mean, I'm assuming obviously most things now are going to be through Zoom, of course, or something. Yeah, so that's a great. So, yeah, not every hospital has the, you know, fortune of having someone specific to either the AYA population or a navigator. Right. But everybody should have someone on their team, like a social worker or someone, even the physicians and the medical team can be really helpful with fertility preservation as well. But again, someone has to know to ask. And that's um, just because, so at the Ullman Foundation, we have a patient navigation team. We are in four different hospitals um, and serve the AYA population slightly differently within each hospital based on how the hospital itself is set up, how the physician is contracted or set up. But they 
yeah, it's not always possible to have someone physically there. So we also have something called a community navigator that will do remote navigation, that will do navigation over the phone, Zoom, email, especially for those places where a hospital does not have someone specific to the AYA population or to patient navigation. So this is something that you can help people with nationally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and again, we don't always know the specific resources in a for sure. A demographic or a location, but we can help point to resources. We can help you with the resource resources um, and identify who would be probably the best person to go to and just sort of the questions to ask and the people to seek out in that process. So absolutely helping enable people to get the their questions answered to be able to figure out what their options are in their specific circumstance and location. Yeah. And I remember when I was reading your article, there was actually a story that was, you know, it was obviously really sad, but obviously really happy too. And it was about a couple, the man was diagnosed with cancer and decided to, you know, save his sperm and he ended up passing. And then his fiance went ahead and, you know, had a little boy with him still, right? It was a boy. A little girl. A little yeah. girl. Oh, yep. Yeah. 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 And they actually were my first. Um, so he was diagnosed at 29, turned 30 while he's in the hospital. Absolutely just passed away very suddenly, ex- like very unexpected. Um, they were actually my first family that I had a fertility preservation conversation with when I was a new navigator. So I was right, yes. internally a mess. I was so nervous because as a navigator, this is one of those things where you have such a short time period to address this with someone and help help them help themselves make a decision among yeah. other decisions. And, you know, while their life is also being turned upside down and on its head and then logistically pulling it off. And typically, you know, in an ideal situation, you would be able to, for a male, do two sperm collections or semen collections. But I can tell you over my experience the past four years that I've only had one or two patients, actually one patient only do two sample collections. They're, they feel fortunate enough to just do one collection And one collection doesn't mean you have one shot in the future at trying to get pregnant. Um, But obviously the more samples and sperm that you have stored, the more options you have down the line. Um, But I helped them preserve. They made, you know, a swift decision as a family. And then, um, you know, there's some legal documents that have to be signed as well, which again, I didn't know at the time, but now I know just giving someone the rights to the samples. Well, if, if heaven forbid something were to happen, someone uh, in the meantime. And then, you know, for them, the right decision was not to either donate their sample or discard it, but it was actually to use it. And again, that they felt was the best way to honor um, their loved one, Larry, who had passed away. And uh, yeah, they had a daughter. This all happened, you know, over two years after he had, um, you know, passed away, but um, it just really kind of reminds us that sometimes you have to make a decision and you're not sure what the right decision is. You make the, you know, these big decisions, especially in a cancer journey, you know, under duress, right? You're, you're basically like your hands are held to the fire. You're like, we need an answer now. And, you know, for some people, imagine a 16 year old being asked about fertility preservation, uh, having kids, my guess is, is something that's so far from their, you know, from their mind and maybe don't even know if they want at that point. And so, you know, giving someone that, option to preserve their fertility gives them options, gives them hope. And even if someone doesn't pursue fertility preservation, having had that conversation with them gives them, you know, again, it goes back to hope. It gives them 
this idea that they're not blindsided down the road, that if they do run into some infertility issues, that it's not something that was just never addressed with them and that they felt like they had somewhat of a, a say in the decision. Um, and that gives them a lot more, it helps with their quality of life down the road and once they're into survivorship. So it's a really incredible and powerful conversation, no matter what the person decides to do. Right. Well, and again, you know, they're not going to think to ask, you know, they're going to oh, think, okay, what do we have yeah. to do to live? You know, they're, you know, it's not in their, it's not in their brain at that moment. So I, I always sort of say the fertility preservation conversation is uh, it's like the ultimate icebreaker, right? So I'm coming in as a new person, one of 10 different new faces that someone's just being diagnosed and saying, hey, let's have this really, you know, potentially awkward conversation, this really personal conversation. Yeah. And, you know, you know, from that point forward, honestly, I found that people will come to you almost for anything after that, because these conversations are just so difficult to have. They're so you know, whole, you know, some, in some cases polarizing, but they just have a lot of, um, emotions and things attached to them as well. And that is very intimate conversations, you know, that you, I mean, most people don't go talking about their fertility to everybody around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, for some people, like you have to use really, you have to really meet your patients where they are. You have to really understand, engage what their understanding is in a very short amount of time and how to best talk about fertility preservation. Some people want the real scientific details and words. Some people need it really broken down and boiled down to very basic concepts. Um, and so, you know, you have to remember like the birds and the bees conversations and how you have, you know, you have to really adjust your conversation with each patient um, and really listen to what they want. Cause sometimes they don't know what they want, but just really, again, it goes back to giving them as much information as we can as a navigator so that they can make what I, you know, an informed decision, which is really the the key and the point of all of this. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah I can't, you know, I mean, I'm just thinking it would just be, it's a really hard thing to imagine. Um, so what would you say? I mean, because, you know, being someone who's obviously very passionate, obviously very caring, I mean, there must be times when you're just like, you know, a case just did not go the way you thought it would, or, you know, maybe, I mean, because obviously, like you said, you have to meet your people where you are or where they are. So is it, I mean, do some people just, I mean, do they get upset? Are there ever people who just don't want to talk about it right now? Or I don't know. I mean, how does it kind of work with the process? Yeah. I mean, the whole spectrum, right? Sure. As someone is diagnosed, I mean, obviously they are so overwhelmed and bombarded with information and just being told they have to make decisions. And so for some people, they're just capacity to deal with one more thing. It's just not there. It's nothing, you know, I have to remind myself a lot of times, and, and this is with almost anything, right? Whether it's our personal lives, work lives, whether it's specific to fertility or some other conversation, it's not personal, whether or not someone decides to do it or their reaction is not what you expect it to be. Um, yeah, I mean, people are really like in the fight of their life. So you're kind of also meeting people sort of at their, their worst. Right. And then here you are giving them sort of bad news as well, being like, Hey, there's this other thing that you didn't think about that is actually financially really expensive. And as a young adult, most young adults don't have like these big nest eggs of like, you know, savings accounts and money and all this kind of stuff that they can tap into to be able to, to pursue fertility. Um, so it's really just this combination of, you know, 
misfortune and uncirc, you know, and unfortunate circumstances on top of unfortunate circumstances. So yeah, I mean, you, you see the whole spectrum again, back to that family that I wrote that article about, they were, they were so gracious and just so open to it. And that's what you hope every patient and family is like, but they're not, they're not all like that. Sometimes you get patients where, you know, there's a parent involved and a child and the parent wants one thing and the, the child wants something else. And so you really have to Oh yeah. I don't want to say placate. You have to listen to everybody who's involved, but ultimately the patient is who really should be the driving force. But again, there are family dynamics and, you know, religious considerations as well. Um, Sometimes you have a conversation and let people know that infertility is a possibility. So I'll give you an example. If a young adult is diagnosed with acute leukemia, they if there is a suspicion of acute leukemia, they are admitted immediately and they want to get treatment started as soon as possible. I mean, we're talking within a day or two of getting an official diagnosis. So for a female, there is no possibility of doing fertility preservation of retrieving any eggs and or storing eggs or embryos. There's just no, cause that process itself takes two to four weeks in an outpatient setting. And then here someone is being admitted and needing to start some very, very um, gonadotoxic, so very toxic therapy to their fertility. And some of the medications that someone gets as an acute leukemia patient are extremely toxic and high risk to becoming infertile, um, most definitely temporarily, if not permanently. So that's right. just like a, a situation where you still have the fertility preservation conversation to let them know that this is a side effect of their treatment. Um, but there is just no possibility of actually pursuing the traditional, you know, fertility preservation of eggs or embryos and, and cryopreservation. The option for those patients is something that's still experimental. It's ovarian suppression, something like Lupron. And there's a couple other medications. They're monthly injections that basically put someone's ovaries into temporary menopause. And the idea is that they're being shielded from the, the toxic effects of chemotherapy um, and that, you know, hopefully it is sparing any reserve that someone has in their ovaries. Um, but that's really kind of the only option. And because it's quote unquote experimental, we just have seen mixed results of whether or not it actually is effective and what we think it's doing. Um, but honestly, there, there really isn't any harm other than, you know, having hot flashes and feeling like you're going through menopause. Um, but there is also financial consideration with that as well for some patients. Sure. Um, so, I mean, it's just, you know, sometimes you want to give someone options, but there really aren't any. And so you just need to also approach it from that point as well, that it is also an educational thing. And it, again, it helps with their quality of life down the road and also just reassuring people that there are options to have a family that you just may have not thought of before. And that this is a modern era and there's lots of options. Modern science is constantly developing. So who knows by the time you're ready to, you know, consider having your own family, there could be other additional options that are, you know, not present today. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, and of course, you know, I mean, I work with fertility science as well and, you know, a lot of times when, well, when they come to me, it's a completely different situation because they are desperate for a baby and they want to have one now. And so many things have failed. Um, but I do know a woman, um, it was actually just personal preference. She didn't know whether she would ever have children. And she, um, so she actually, you know, had an ovary removed and preserved. And that is experimental too, with the idea mm-hmm. that you can graft it onto 
the other ovary and then it will start working and it'll still be the age that you had it removed. Um, I don't know if that's something, I mean, I'm sure that that is something that is not done, you know, very commonly or probably, you know, pretty rarely depending on where you are in the country. So anything that is experimental, again, you have to be at an institution that has an IRB or internal um, review board to make sure that whatever's going on is controlled setting, reducing harm. Yeah still offering people standard of care, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, those types of experimental options, like uh, removing an ovary or taking a piece of someone's ovary out or, you know, all these different yeah. options that are not, you know, standard of care these days. Yeah, sure. it really yeah, are not yet. in between. Um, but the thing about fertility preservation is the things that I'm talking about, like preserving someone's sperm, eggs, or embryos, um, you know, those are only for people who have hit puberty. Anything that is offered to someone who has not hit puberty, which typically happens before someone hits or is sort of to the population outside of the AYA age range, unless someone is sort of a late bloomer, so to speak. Um, those are only experimental. There are no standard of care options for a pediatric patient or someone who's prepubescent to do fertility preservation. Yeah. Oh, so. gosh. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's not something that you think about. I mean, when your seven-year-old goes in for cancer treatments, you don't think, I wonder if, you know, they're ever going to have babies. And the other thing too, is that, as you said, there are so many ways to become parents. Mm -hmm. So many ways. I always sort of tell people there is no guarantee, right? That's what we're asking you to consider is something I call it fertility preservation and insurance policy. So if there is the ability to preserve having a biological child, that's basically what this process is. Right. Um, but there are ways like, let's say for whatever reason, your ovarian reserve, you know, all the eggs that you have, those are pretty much harmed, but you still have a uterus and, you know, hormones are not, you know, still intact and all that kind of stuff. You can still potentially with obviously the discretion of your medical team, potentially a child just may not be biological, or there are ways to have your biological DNA you know, you can either get sperm donors and egg donors um, and have a surrogate or there's so many different options. A lot of times people will preserve their fertility and then they, some people don't end up using their eggs, embryos or sperm and they can get donated. So there's still ways to kind of, because people's perspective changes, whether or not you have a cancer diagnosis, we evolve and change over time. Our priorities change, our values you know, we want different things at different points in our life. So you have the best of intentions, but um, this process gives people the ability to pick and choose what's right for them um, 10 years down the road, you know, if they're not ready to, to make that call, Yeah, you know, a younger age. So it's a pretty cool process and pretty empowering to let people have a little bit of control in a place where, and on a journey where there isn't a lot of things that they can control. Right. So fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, what would you say? I mean, I know that your job is probably obviously very taxing and obviously very rewarding, but, um, you know, I mean, just tell me about like an amazing day that you had at work, you know, whether it was somebody had like an aha moment or maybe, you know, just whatever, just a great day at work, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, the most rewarding and the best days are the ones where, you get to connect with a patient. And I think it's something that I've learned over time. So my whole purpose is to make sure someone feels supported. So support isn't always, you know, getting someone money or 
connecting them to another resource. For me, the best day is getting to sit down with a patient, like while they're sitting in infusion for six hours, tethered to, you know, the, their chemo, all the medications and everything, and just sitting down and really talking to them. Cause I think what these patients and really any patient craves is the, the feeling of normalcy. They're their diagnosis. They shouldn't be defined by that. And so I think for me, one of the ways that I've best been able to really connect with patients in the days that I think in the conversations that are the most meaningful are ones where I just sit down and get to catch up with someone because for them, that is supportive for some people, not for everybody, but just connecting with them on that level and rather just making everything a transaction or, you know, always about something so dire or, you know, negative that just really connecting with them and getting to know them as a person and just, um, I think that also helps with them trusting you and coming to you when there is an issue because there aren't always issues. Um, yeah. and just letting people know that you are there and that, cause not a lot of people in the medical field can sit down and have these long in depth, you know, really, um, personal conversations with people and really get to invest time in them as a person right. and I think that, for me, those are the best days because I know that I have, I am in a unique position to be able to do that with my patients that many of the other providers can't do. Cause you know, they're on a schedule. They have to be in and out in 15 yeah. minutes or seven minutes or whatever the time is. So I think for me, those are kind of the best days. Um, I'll tell you the one thing though, that makes any day great, right? Like you said, this is a really emotional taxing job, but I think the thing for me is that I recognize over time is that these are my patients are the nicest people. They, whatever inkling of hope and positive, like energy and, you know, just mental capacity they have, I want to preserve that. And so I think that is just the way that I approach things and can be really helpful to my patients is to really kind of help keep them there. But if they're having a bad day, letting them tell me about it, you know? So it's just really, I think, connecting on that human level that just makes this job so rewarding and also just makes, I think, um, that support piece a little bit more special for these patients. Definitely. No, it's an, it's an incredibly important job. And, um, how can people get a hold of you or, um, who would you, cause I know like there's patient advocates, of course, there's social workers. If somebody doesn't have like a specific navigator, like you do, or, you know, like your job then, or your position, who would they ask? about yeah. this, about these things. Yeah, so I mean in general, um a lot of hospitals are part and your medical team is part of a multidisciplinary team. Sure. So if you ask your physician or you ask anybody on your medical team if you have a a question or a problem and just ask them what it is. If so. they're not the right person, they'll be able to tell you who is. Um but just knowing that you have every hospital has patient advocates. They also yeah. should have social workers, but again, not every hospital has ones that are specific to young adults. There are lots of young adult nonprofits and organizations like the Ullman Foundation out there that are either regional or across the U.S. that help connect young adult patients. And so those are always great places to go to get, again, maybe not professional advice, but to connect with other people who have been in similar situations or circumstances and just see what they did in circumstances, you know, in situations um, and how to deal with any barriers that you might be facing. So things like stupid cancer, um, team cancer, America, lacuna loft. I mean, there's so many organizations out there um, that are really geared towards AYAs. So I think that that is a really helpful resource in general as well. Um, and then the Ullman foundation is obviously 
nationally recognized. We've been around for a while. And so if we're not the right organization, we will certainly help you find, you know, those geographically, you know, specific or need specific resources that would suit, you know, kind of the things that you would need specifically. So the Ullman Foundation, um, our website, um, all of our contact information is on there. And so we make ourselves really accessible if anybody has any questions um, or needs any assistance. Yes. And of course, everything's going to be in the show notes. Megan, I want to thank you so much for sharing with us today. This has been amazing. And I think that, again, this is just something, it's just one more thing that is certainly not common knowledge. So I thank you for sharing all of your wisdom and expertise today. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Thank you for inviting me, Amy. And I I hope that somewhat everyone learned at least a little something that they didn't already know um, and that this just you know, gets you more interested in this topic. So I'm really happy to be here and thank you. And maybe we can find some more patient navigators. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for joining me today on Women's Pelvis Wellness, where you can be heard. Because remember, if you're not being heard, you're not being helped. Please join my Facebook group by the same name, Women's Pelvis Wellness, and join a community of women who are there for you to support you, guide you, and love you through your pelvic health struggles. Also, this is a great place to check out my new class schedule. Thank you for joining me in becoming a pelvis wellness warrior.